Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke 24. If you're using the Bible in your row, that's on page 884. And if you're a visitor here and you do not have a Bible of your own or you don't have one that's very readable, readable, you may have one that has archaic language, we would be really, really grateful if you would take that Bible home with you as our gift. Now, by way of broad context, as a church, we believe in the verse-by-verse exposition, verse-by-verse preaching through a book of the Bible. And so we began preaching through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse, one verse at a time, since uh, we we began it at the end of 2017. Uh, That's almost five years. Um, At least 11 children in this congregation were not born yet when we started. We had not yet broken ground for this building. COVID was not a household term. And Pastor Walton had hair, from what I've heard. (laughs) We started in 2017 with the birth of Christ. We spent three years looking at the public ministry of Christ. Um, And then in August of 2021, we came to the last week of our Lord's life. We began with the triumphal entry, uh, and that took us about six months to study this last week of our Lord's life as he came into Jerusalem. He preached and taught in the temple. He uh, upset the religious elites. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He was betrayed, arrested. He was tried on trumped-up charges in six different courts. He was forced to carry his cross through Jerusalem. Finally, he was nailed between two thieves on Golgotha where he died. Last week, we saw as Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in a tomb that belonged to Joseph and his family. And then several women, along with Joseph and a man named Nicodemus, gathered right as as they were burying him, seeking to prepare Christ's body for burial. But they had to stop because nightfall came. They wouldn't do work on the Sabbath, and so they were forced to roll the stone over the opening of the tomb and leave their work behind. Now, what may have been a great frustration or disappointment in the moment was actually a part of God's sovereign plan to draw these women back to the tomb first thing Sunday morning so that they could be the first witnesses of the resurrection. Look with me now at this great passage, Luke 24, starting at verse 1. This is the word of God. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, "'Why do you seek the living among the dead?' He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. 
But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. It's Easter. And for pastors, in a lot of ways, this is like the last two minutes of the Super Bowl. We always want to preach our our best, of course. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day, and so we always want to preach our best, but there is an extra bit of pressure as we preach on Easter, especially as we desire to preach a message worthy of the resurrection of Christ. How would you define good preaching? I suspect that if we were to ask every man, woman, and child in this room how you define good preaching, we would get uh, 175 or so different answers. Some want brevity, others want profundity, some want levity, and some want gravity. We all have different things that we look for. My goal this morning is actually very different than what you might think. My goal this morning is to utterly confuse you. Another way to say it would be, I want you to have the experience of the women in verse 4, where we're told they were perplexed. I want that to be your experience as well. And the reason that's my goal is because every person in this room has some idea about who the real Jesus is. Every one of us has some idea in our mind of, of who we think Jesus is, and it's informed by a lot of things. It's informed by our church background. It's informed by our life experiences and who taught us these things and so on. And for some of you, you may have a very negative opinion of, of Jesus. You're here because you were told to be here. Others may be apathetic, Sure, Jesus is fine as long as he stays in his lane and lets me stay in my lane. Let me tell you, all lanes are Jesus' lane. And that may sound like bad news if you're not interested in Jesus, if you feel like you already have a very full life and you don't need to to fit Jesus into it. But I can tell you, it is very, 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 very good news that all lanes are Jesus' lanes. And I can say that because with 100% certainty, for all of us, including me, I can tell you that whatever you think of Jesus, it isn't nearly as glorious or as wonderful as Jesus really is. No matter how great you think Jesus is, he is exponentially better. He is infinitely better. There, There is nothing undesirable. There is nothing that isn't wonderful in Jesus Christ. And so you and I each bring our preconceptions about Jesus, and I want you to be utterly confused today because I want you to realize that he is exponentially better than you have ever imagined. that's, That's my goal, because until you are confused about Jesus, until you're perplexed, you and I will never let go of the figment of our imagination about who we think Jesus really is. These women were faithful followers. They had no idea how great, how powerful, how wonderful Jesus is. And so that's going to be true for a lot of us as well. We're believers, but for most of us, he's kind of a small Jesus. He's captive to our own religious duties and our own experiences. And he's captive to to maybe a Sunday morning once a week, maybe a couple times a year at most. 
But otherwise, we try to fit him into some small corner of our lives. But the Jesus most of us know is not a life-giving, life-transforming, gracious and saving, triumphing over all his enemies kind of Savior. And that's the Savior I want to introduce you to today. So let me say this as clearly as I can. If you see Jesus as anything less than the one who can both completely satisfy and save your soul, then you need to be confused about who Jesus is. My desire is that as you get over your confusion and I get over my confusion and we see that Jesus is exponentially better than we've ever imagined, that as we depart from those doors today, we wouldn't be asking questions like, did you like the music? Did you enjoy the sermon? That the thing that would be on your lips is, isn't Jesus glorious? That's my desire for you today. And we're going to look at that under three headings. First, I want you to see a Jesus who meets our needs Second, we're going to look at a Jesus who exceeds our expectations. And and third, we're going to look at a Jesus who surpasses our comprehension. And if you're using a bulletin, you'll find those notes there. Uh, You'll find that outline there, and you can follow along. But let's look at these three things. First, we need to understand how it is that Jesus meets our needs. Most of the world, at least most of the Western world, pauses today because they're is no event more worthy of celebrating than the resurrection of Christ. But it's only a day of celebration if we understand why we needed the resurrection. It's only uh, important. It only matters if we understand why we need it. So if Easter is just a, a moving story about a man who was unjustly murdered and he experienced then some kind of vindication, Well, that's a great story, but it's not very relevant to our lives. Or if it's just a great holiday and you have wonderful memories of sitting around the kitchen table at Easter and and eating your grandmother's fried chicken and you remember the cantatas in your church growing up, well, those are good memories, but it's not very relevant to your daily life, is it? The resurrection of Christ is not only relevant to Easter Sunday, but it is relevant to every day in the life of the believer because it meets our greatest need. You see, the resurrection is not just a story about something that happened 2,000 years ago. The resurrection is the culmination of all of history. All of history finds its, its high point in the resurrection of Christ. Th- this great scene where the Son of God comes from death to life, he gives the universe the meaning that it needs. It's the culmination of a story that started way back in the very beginning when Adam and Eve were created. God, God created them, gave them this whole beautiful garden. He, he gave them all of it. He gave them even himself, and he gave them each other. He said, it's all yours. There's one rule, the, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. But to summarize the attitude of, of Adam and Eve, their response was, as they looked at the tree, Not thy will, but my will be done. And with their sin, all sadness, all sorrow, all hurt, all shame, all disappointment, all stress, all of it came crashing like a meteor to the face of the earth. And a stubborn, pervasive darkness came down upon this world. And the question immediately 
Even as you're looking at Genesis 3, the question you have to ask is, was God going to leave the world in this stubborn darkness? Would he abandon his world? You know, there were clues all throughout the Old Testament that that he wouldn't. But there was a clue even in the garden. In the very weeks, uh, the very week of creation, you remember the order of the days of creation? We talk about days in terms of, of morning and evening, but if you go back to the creation account, it says there was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. It says that over and over again. God is training us to a pattern that tells us after darkness comes light. After sin entered the world, light would one day come. Now, for the followers of Christ, they had heard him say that he was the light of the world. But the final week of his life, the darkness seemed to grow thicker, didn't it? You see it on the night when our Lord was betrayed. The whole scene is dark. Is even the upper room, it's, it's, it's evening time, it's dark, and then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's, it's dark, and he's awaiting his betrayal and, and his arrest. He's dreading the curse that's about to fall upon him, and he got ready to do what Adam wouldn't do. Whereas Adam had once stood in a garden, and he looked at a tree and said, not my will, but thy will be done, the Lord Jesus Christ stood in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, The second Adam, he stood in the darkness of Gethsemane. He, in his mind, could see the tree that was waiting for him to hang on it. And he said to his father, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, despite all that Jesus taught his followers, they still thought, even by this point, that he came to bring them freedom from Roman oppression. Isn't what that, isn't that what we really want? A Jesus who fixes all of our problems and makes our life easier? Gives us all that we want? You can go home this afternoon and you can turn on a televangelist and I promise you he's going to sell you that kind of Jesus. A Jesus who the only thing he wants for you is for you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. Our greatest problem, just like Israel's greatest problem wasn't Roman oppression, Our greatest problem today is not political, it's not relational, it's not financial, it's not medical, it's not environmental. Our greatest problem is that you and I, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, are hellbound. And so our greatest need is not a better politician or a better government, our greatest need is a savior. Now, wait a minute. Did you just say, I'm hell-bound? I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. I know that's what some of you are probably thinking. Have you ever told a lie? Even a really little white lie? Just one lie. What does that make you? It makes you a liar, doesn't it? Okay. I'm a good person, but I'm a liar. All right. Um, Have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, but it, it was small. Okay, so now you're a lying thief. Oh, and Jesus said, if you ever look on another woman in your heart with lust, that's the act of adultery. Have you ever looked on somebody with lust? Well, yeah, I'm human. Okay, so you're a good person, but you're also a lying thief adulterer. 
you know what? We're not really as good as we think, are we? We always think very highly of ourselves. Our greatest need is a Savior. Because apart from the grace of God, all of us stand condemned before Him. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to do His Father's will because we wouldn't. We didn't. We didn't even want to. And that's what he came to do. And so Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus is taking our place. He is coming as the second Adam who is going to do his father's will in our place. Do what we failed to do. But then the only sinless person who ever lived was arrested, convicted, beaten, flogged, nailed to a cross, crucified, and left for dead. Why did he die? Because sin requires death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus went to the cross for sin, not for his sin. He had no sin, but for our sin. So the Bible says, as Pastor Walton preached on Friday, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. That's what he was upon the cross. He was sin for us. And now, as these ladies come to the tomb Sunday morning, they're expecting a dark tomb. They're expecting that darkness to continue. And they get there, and what do they see but light shining in? This was the moment all of creation had waited for. Paul tells us in Romans 8, the creation groans under the weight of sin. The resurrection is proof that Christ met our greatest need. Again, Pastor Walton, on Friday, he made the statement, Christ purchased our redemption on the cross. The resurrection is the receipt that says paid in full. Your greatest need, friends, your greatest need is not a better job or a spouse or a different spouse. Your greatest need is a Savior. Because your greatest problem is sin. And only Jesus can meet that need. So that's the first thing. Jesus meets our needs. Second, we see here Jesus exceeds our expectation. These women adored Jesus. There's absolutely no question about that. They were probably the most faithful people on the face of the earth that day. But their expectation of who Jesus was and what he came to do was way too small. And so Luke says there in verse 4 that they were perplexed. They were perplexed. They, they, they simply didn't understand what was going on. In fact, we see that before they get to the tomb. Mark tells us, Mark 16 tells us they're loaded down with anxieties. How are we going to roll the stone away? We're not strong enough to do that. How in the world are we going to do that? They're incredibly devoted, but, but they're distracted. They, they have this very small view of Christ. And then they get to the tomb, and it's more anxiety. Somebody must have stolen the body. And then they meet these angels who came to tell them of Christ, that, that Christ was risen, and their first reaction was to be terrified, to be frightened. These ladies are on this amazing roller coaster of emotions because it simply didn't cross their mind that Jesus was great enough to even be risen from the dead. 
In fact, we see that. They showed up with spices and oil. Why else were they carrying those things? It's because they were going to anoint his dead body. And so they had to have this moment of utter confusion. They had to be utterly perplexed in order to realize that even these godly ladies had far too low of an expectation of Jesus. Look at what the angels say. He's risen. And don't you remember when he told you he would? (laughs) No, we don't remember that. We wouldn't have brought the oil and the spices if we had remembered that. When's he talking about? Well, back in Luke 9... Verse 22, Jesus told him the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised. You know, these ladies, as faithful as they were, they didn't have a a grand enough expectation of Jesus. The word that he had spoken to them had not penetrated to the depths of their heart. I don't say that judgmentally, by the way. These were the godliest women on the face of the earth at this point. At least they showed up. I would have been with the disciples somewhere, either sleeping in or sulking in my own fear and in my own uh, remorse about Jesus' death. These women, amidst their great adoration and devotion, had entirely too low of, of expectations. They thought that Jesus went into the grave a victim of injustice. But they did not realize that Jesus went into the grave so that he could bust the lock off the gates of hell and be raised from the dead. So the angels come and and tell them he is risen. You know, when Jesus went down into the grave, everything that had been tumbling downward since Adam and Eve went with him. All sickness, all sorrow, death itself was crushed to death. And with his resurrection, he left it behind. John has that amazing picture. Uh, When when Jesus left the tomb, he left the grave clothes there. That's a symbol of, of death being left behind, that Jesus is now victorious over it. And these women didn't realize that. They expected when they showed up, his body would be cold and Lifeless just as it was 36 hours before, but Jesus has exceeded their expectations. Not only is he alive, he comes and he meets with them. And we're going to see that in the resurrection appearances. He shows up again and again. He shows up to crowds of 500 at times. Let me make a point of early application here. So often we come into worship like these ladies did, don't we? We have no expectation of meeting with Jesus. So often we open our Bibles and have the same expectation these ladies did. It's, we have no expectation that we are going to meet with the glorious risen Jesus Christ. In fact, I think for many people who are in churches today, their life would look absolutely no different if Jesus wasn't resurrected. Do you realize that the Lord Jesus this very morning is more delighted to meet with you than even you are to meet with him? That he is delighted to come and gather with us in, our, in his presence. He has ordained this day, the first day of the week, to be the day that he calls Christians together to come and worship. Let's have right expectations that when we gather in worship, Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected Savior, will be here with us and meet with us as a church family.
That's what Jesus is doing today. He's building up a church. And this church is not just for us. The church that Jesus is building across the face of the earth is to be the image of Jesus' new creation that he is doing and will one day cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's a great scene in John's Gospel where Mary Magdalene comes looking for Jesus. She's sitting by the empty tomb. She's weeping. She hasn't yet seen Jesus. There's two angels there. By the way, two being the biblical requirement for eyewitnesses according to Deuteronomy. And they say, why are you weeping? And in John 20 verse 13, she says, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Now, it's a heartwarming scene with this this wonderful sister in Christ. And she turns around and she sees somebody behind her. And she doesn't recognize who it is, and it's Jesus. And in John 20, verse 15, it says, Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him. And then she realizes it's Jesus, and she's ecstatic. But think about that statement, supposing him to be the gardener. This happens several times in the Gospels where people make these statements, and they have no idea how profound they are. So you've got Caiaphas uh, in John 18, who said, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He had no idea the theological profundity of what he said. Or, or, or Pilate, nailing the sign to the cross that says King of the Jews. Now, he has no idea that Jesus really is the true King of the Jews. That's what Mary Magdalene's doing here. She has no idea who she's looking at, and she supposes it's the gardener. What was Adam's duty in the garden? He was to cultivate and tend the garden. And he threw it all away with sin. And here is Jesus with the new creation, creating something new and infinitely more glorious. A a people, a garden of worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, y'all, we're not meant to think of the resurrection just in terms of me and Jesus. We're to think of it in grand cosmic terms. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, Christ has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he's done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Jesus blows the door off of their and our expectations. This brings us to our third point. Jesus surpasses our comprehension. The ladies realize what's happened. They take off to find the disciples and tell them. The disciples have the same experience of utter confusion. They they can't comprehend that it's true. In fact, it's really an offensive scene. It, It says that they thought the ladies were telling an idle tale. Uh, the Greek there is the kind of word for when somebody um, has a, uh, is delirious with a fever. They thought that these women who have been nothing but godly followers of Christ, that they were crazy for telling them that Jesus had risen. They, they simply can't imagine it's true because they can't comprehend that it could be true. You know, if God only does what we can comprehend, he wouldn't be much of a God at all, would he? When we decide what God is or isn't capable of based on what we could imagine, what we can comprehend, then we end up with a God who's really no greater than us. That's where the disciples were. But their curiosity gets to them. 
Luke only tells us Peter ran to the tomb. John tells us that what seems like John uh, was also there running to the tomb. They get there and they find what the women already knew, what you already know, which is the tomb was empty. It's incomprehensible, but we, we have to remember that God can do whatever he desires. You know, I wonder, how did the resurrection happen? It's interesting, if you look through the New Testament, you see that the Father raised Jesus. You see that Jesus, by his own power, was raised, and he was raised by the power of the Spirit. This was a Trinitarian work, but the Scriptures don't tell us how it happened. How did his heart just start beating again? What happened to the wound in his side? Did it scab over? There's much that it doesn't tell us. I know that folks can be skeptical about the resurrection because it passes our human comprehension. But I don't think this is the only thing that passes our comprehension in the Bible. In fact, I think there are things that are more incomprehensible than the resurrection. Let me name a couple of them. The first is, it's incomprehensible that God should love us at all, isn't it? That's beyond anything that is imaginable that this God who is holy, 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 who is so glorious that the angels in heaven cover their eyes because they can't look upon him, that he should pursue and love sinners, right? We've already proven we're sinners, haven't we? Not only do we not hide our, our eyes from our sin, we don't even know how to blush at our sin anymore. Sin is the opposite of God in every way, and yet this God pursues and loves sinners. Is that not incomprehensible? He loves us so much that he gave over his only son. There's that scene in Genesis 22 where God calls Abraham to do the incomprehensible, to take Isaac up onto the mountain and sacrifice his only son, And Abraham, in his obedience, is willing to do so, but God, just as Abraham was about to do it, God says, stop. See, sacrificing Isaac would not have accomplished anything. God says to Abraham, now I know that you love me. Look at the cross, and you see the God who did not spare his own son, who did not stop, and see how much he loves you. It's incomprehensible how much God loves sinners. It's also incomprehensible that he gives us salvation as a gift. Think about that. It's not to be received by works. We don't go to God and come up with some sort of bargain. Okay, God, I will go to church three Sundays out of the month if you'll give me salvation. God, I'll I'll start tithing. God, I'll, I'll... And you come up with a list of things, and we all do it naturally. We have this natural works-based righteousness in us. But God says, no, no, no. As long as you're standing on your own righteousness, this isn't for you. It's a free gift, and the only way you receive it is not by works, but by faith. What's faith? Faith is acknowledging that I can't do anything to receive it. I can't do anything to earn it. And so I cast my whole hope of eternity not on me, but on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. It's incomprehensible that he would give us that as a gift. 
I'm stingy. I don't like giving. But he gives so generously. And then even more incomprehensible is the fact that his spirit lives in us. Do you know that? That if you're a Christian right now, the Bible says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has chosen to make his dwelling place in you. Now that's astounding because the Holy Spirit is what? Holy, right? Is everything that you and I do holy? Paul confronts this in 1 Corinthians 6. It's really a stunning scene. The Corinthians had all sorts of problems. And one of the things that Paul had found out about is that some of the Corinthian Christians were going to prostitutes. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Paul's saying there, you're going to take Jesus with you into that wretched place? It is incomprehensible and amazing that this God should choose to dwell in and with us. And he does so by grace. There's one more thing that's more incomprehensible, I think, than the resurrection. And that is that there are people who profess to believe all of this, who profess to be Christians, but the story of the resurrection doesn't take over the story of their life. They relegate it to a small corner, a small part of life, but it doesn't become their life. To say you believe the resurrection but not be utterly transformed by it is incomprehensible. If I affirm that the Son of God was crucified for my sins and raised from the dead and now he he lives in me and that doesn't radically transform my life, then I am obviously confused about what the gospel is. Think for a moment about these women. They're confused. There's so much they don't understand. In fact, there are five-year-old children in this congregation who know more theology than these women did. And yet these women, with all of their misunderstandings, were absolutely devoted to Christ. They were willing to risk shame. They were going to go at their own expense. They were going to give of their own time to care for the, what they thought was a dead Savior. How much more should you and I, if we profess to be believers, be willing to serve him with the whole of our lives? These women had no idea how glorious Jesus was, but they were willing to serve him with everything they had, What about us who, by God's grace, know so much more? Do we follow Jesus with our whole hearts? Do you follow Jesus with your whole heart? That's what what we're called to here. If Jesus is really as wonderful as we say he is, then it makes no sense to relegate him to one small corner of our life. He needs to be the center of our life. So let me tell you this, beloved. Whatever you think of Jesus, he's infinitely greater And however you might think of of a life spent walking with him and pursuing him, studying his word, serving him, I can tell you that it is infinitely better than you imagine. Because you're not serving a dead Savior, you're serving a risen Savior who comes and he meets with you, who delights to be with you. And so we do these things not out of empty ritual. We serve Jesus not out of empty ritual, but because he is the risen Savior, and we do so in fellowship with him.
just one application. This passage urges us, and I want to urge you, to make your walk with Christ the most important thing in your life. Is it? There are some undoubtedly in this room who can say yes, and I believe you. There are others who are going to say no, it isn't. And I want to urge you to reprioritize your life in a way that is worthy of a risen Savior. Christ is alive. He's offered himself fully to us, not just to get us out of hell, but to be our closest friend. There's a wonderful principle in this passage. Who were the people who were the first to enjoy the good news of the resurrection? When everybody else is sulking, who were the ones that got to enjoy the good news first? It was those who had followed Christ most closely. My friends, the same is true for us, that as we follow the Lord Jesus more and more closely, we will enjoy him more and more and more, and we will be more and more and more satisfied with him. Seek Jesus Christ. He will not hide himself from you. Seek him, and the Bible says you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we praise you for this good word. We thank you that Jesus Christ does not hide from us, but he offers himself to us freely in the gospel. We confess, oh, Lord, that we spend so much time wasting it. We spend so much time doing things that are ultimately inconsequential for eternity. When the Lord Jesus himself has pledged himself to us, God, give us true desire to meet with him, to be found in him, and to live for him forever and ever. 